0: And Lan said that, I executed you, and he, he, he draw his, they call, 45, and put, him, and put him, put him that
1: Former South Vietnamese Marine, Tran Ngoc Tuan is describing a moment that you probably already know because of the most famous photograph from the war in Vietnam. For most of this podcast, we've talked about the choices Ken Burns and Lynn Novick made and the big issues they grappled with as they made their documentary. But sometimes, it takes a small thing to capture a very big idea. And so today, we're going to talk about that photograph. It's a picture I think a lot of you have probably already seen. It was taken on a city street in Saigon. On the left, a man in a vest and a shirt with the sleeves rolled up has extended his right arm. He's holding a revolver. In fact, he's just fired it. And to the right, we see the man who's just been shot. He's skinny and he wears a plaid shirt and shorts. His face is tensed against the blow, but it's too late. You can see his temple bulging as the bullet rips through it. The man with the gun was General Nguyen Ngoc Lan, the South Vietnamese chief of national police. The man he killed was Nguyen Van Lem, a member of the National Liberation Front who had been accused of murdering an entire South Vietnamese family. Eddie Adams, a photographer for the Associated Press, captured their confrontation during the Tet Offensive in 1968. Adams won a Pulitzer Prize for the photo, and it's become justly one of the most famous pictures taken during the conflict. But Adams wasn't the only journalist there that day. Bo Su, a Vietnamese cameraman for NBC, was also present. And in the sixth episode of the Vietnam War, we got to see the footage that he shot. And for me, it changed everything I thought I knew about that iconic, terrible moment. I'm Melissa Rosenberg, and you're listening to The American War, a podcast about how America lost its way in Vietnam and how Ken Burns and Lynn Novick are trying to help us find our way back. I'm here with Ken to talk about Episode 6 of the documentary. So, now, Ken, obviously there's more to the Tet Offensive than one act of violence or one picture, but one of the things I found so striking about this episode was the footage of Nguyen Van Lem being executed by General Wan on a public street in Saigon. It seems like that moment, which became a very famous still photo, was a major turning point for a lot of your sources as well. There are so many iconic still photos from the Vietnam era, and one thing you do often in this movie is show the audience video that supplements those images. Are there things you're trying to get them to see by putting both of those kinds of images on screen and showing them these scenes in two ways?
0: Um, you know, the Eddie Adams is in a class by itself. It's the only moment in the film in which we get truly meta and stop and dissect the photograph, look at the the um, you know the the contact sheet. It's very interesting that you bring it up because I lived for it for many many years, from when it took place in '68 until whenever Peter Davis's uh, wonderful documentary Hearts and Minds came out, in which I was I can't even begin to describe how disturbed I was by the footage of the of the assassination that was taking place and captured by the NBC cameraman along with Eddie Adams's photograph and so um, I've spent my life celebrating the sort of DNA that a single still photograph uh, is about but in in one case the footage has its own primacy. While Eddie Adams' photograph was on the front page of every um, newspaper, uh, it seems, across the world, as well as the country, and had profound influence on um, turning people's opinions about the war. Uh, uh, it, It is the footage that in some ways has... Uh, the power uh, to see the cavalierness with which Luan steps up to him and kills him, the drinking of the beer afterwards, but more importantly, the way Lem falls, uh, the way the blood um, gushes up, uh, you know, eight or ten or twelve inches from his head for a moment, the way the pool of blood. And NBC, to their credit, insists that we only use exactly what was being shown no more, and, in, and more importantly, no less. Uh, for those of us uncomfortable by that sort of stuff. And for me, um, we had a screening with, uh, uh, you know, an internal screening of this episode a few years ago, and uh, we had a at that point a young intern named Frank, and Frank came down, as as is the case in every screening, everybody has a chance to say something, and he was clearly upset and he said i've grown up with violent images i've watched you know uh, you know tv shows and movies and comic books and graphic novels and uh mostly the video games that young boys of his age have played all their lives violent video games that as a father of daughter i thank god every day that they have not had that and he said but that guy's really dead and he started to cry and um you know at that point i just sort of said you know this is, this is a real film we're making. And we all nodded and comforted him and said, yeah, he is dead. And I just thought, you know, as we wring our hands with safe arguments without any empirical data that our kids are different and they're numbed and inured, that somehow uh, that footage and that photograph got through to uh, uh, one kid. And, and I've seen it in other places, not as profoundly as our Frank, but um, made a big difference.
1: I think for me, I mean you talked about the beer and the way he falls, but the thing that has always stayed with me is sort of the looseness of the general's wrist yeah. as he's sort of waving the revolver yeah. around.
0: That's what I meant by cavalier. It's just yeah. so it's just so run of the mill as if the e- e- extinguishing and look, you're in the military, that's your job. But just the cavalierness of a surrendered prisoner or a captured prisoner or whatever it is, and it's a spy, and obviously, you know, he's lost uh, comrades in this, but there's no justification uh, for that moment Uh, in any rational scenario. Any humane scenario is probably the better way to describe it. And so what it becomes is an abhorrent mirror to the possibilities in ourselves. This episode is called Things Fall Apart, and it has to do with uh, William Butler Yeats' um, poem that Robert Kennedy cites in an in a, uh, editorial that he writes that year, opposing the war in, in kind of no uncertain terms in the New York Times. Uh, but uh, it's also about the, what the title of the next episode is about, the veneer of civilization. Uh, this is how close we are. And I always feel that all of these images here are mirrors. They ask us. And I think one of the gifts of filmmaking is that it permits us to order and sequence images to remind us of not what happens, but also what we are capable of uh, of ourselves. And so I think I want, uh, I don't want just, you know, Frank's realization that he's dead. Implicit behind that is our own culpability in in what's taken place. And look, murder and war, they're synonymous, but there's something about that moment, that photograph and that footage that are the, you know, it's the heart of darkness of the whole story.
1: So you mentioned the primacy of the still photograph in your work a minute ago. And one thing I learned when I was reading more about this photograph is that Adams came to believe that it didn't tell the whole story. And even the video doesn't tell the whole story and that, you know, Lem was accused of murdering a family of, I think, six people, right? Right, right. And so, I mean, still photography plays an incredibly important role in your work. Do you ever feel distrustful of the photos? All,
0: all the time, of course. Of course, uh, you know, the subjectivity of everything is is always there. Let's just go back one episode to Musgrave's admission that they never took a prisoner. You know, he said, you know, we did not torture and we did not mutilate. You know, which is sometimes what they found uh, when they went back after a battle when they couldn't bring back all their wounded and found mutilation. But you said if you came into our hands, you were just, an, uh, you know, just one sorry f- which means there took place an off-camera execution exactly the same as, uh, as Lamb. It's just not in front of a camera, and does that make it any less real?
1: Um, I mean, do you think that something like this where you have... Both the photo and the video encourages audiences to think a little bit more critically about an image like that i mean it 's not as if the yeah. video debunks uh, it, but
0: well, no no, no, I think that 's exactly right i I thought that for the first time i 've always felt that the still photograph gave dimension to something that was essentially uh, one dimensional, which is footage or two dimensional it just you could you could just describe what was going on. And that's what it was good for. The photograph allows you to arrest things. And that's what happens. If you look at the first moment the narrator talks in our film, it's the first time you're seeing still photographs, right? Everything before has been live cinematography or footage, right? And for the very first time, you're seeing uh, still photographs, and they will be for the entire introductory narration that delivers you to to Baonin, our our North Vietnamese, who ends the introduction. So, uh, yeah, they're hugely important, but in some way, I think, somehow this footage in combination, just like with Kim Fook and the still photograph that Nick Ut took of, of her running down the street naked, uh, the footage and the photograph go hand in hand. And in terms of this, you know, long held desire to kind of wake these moments up, these long-gone moments up, they, they, they work in concert uh, pretty well for our understanding of it. I guess the third image would be the, the girl um, leaning over her friend uh, who's just been murdered at Kent State as sort of the third of the famous iconic images that you know really transformed our understanding of, of the war. And even then, what I had never known until I got to this project is that she's wearing a shirt that says slave on it. It just says slave. And the way the contrast of a newspaper and subsequent reprintings, nobody had dug that out. And if you go back and look, her, her, her shirt says slave. Of which we are all, James Baldwin told me in Statue of Liberty, slaves to so something, money, or hating Jews, or, or whatever it is.
1: Well, it's interesting. When I was writing the questions for this conversation, I think I was in a place where I was feeling a little skeptical of still photography. And then I don't know if you saw the photo that Ryan Kelly, a local news photographer, took in Charlottesville of that car plowing into this crowd of people. But I saw it in the first thing I thought of was Eddie Adams. I
0: agree. I agree completely. And we're always there. And it's something, you know, we do, you know, we do like the footage of the truck barreling down the boulevard in Nice. Uh, you know, towards the intended victims. You know, we we are drawn to that, to the footage of this or that or the other thing. But it's often in the end, the thing that, that remains is that uh, arrested still photograph that speaks the, the thousand words that we thought maybe in this devalued age, uh, it, it, it didn't anymore.
1: If the Vietnam War reminds us all over again how powerful a single still photo can be, it also can be overwhelming to sort through all the photography that came out of the conflict. So why does this picture stick with us? I've talked about how that picture affected me, but I wanted to know what it meant to the filmmakers. So I asked Lynn why this picture lingered with her, what it took to get Bosu's footage, and how they decided to use it in the film. By this time in the war, Americans had already seen graphic images and disturbing footage out of Vietnam, including Morley Safer's CBS broadcast from Cam Ne. Other than the fact that it's such an amazing photograph and such a piece, amazing piece of photographic serendipity, why do you think this photograph made such a strong impression on Americans?
2: I think it has to do with, there's lots of, if you think about it, you see photographs of people who have been killed, and you see people who have been wounded. Um, and you see people that are being menaced, threatened, maybe with a gun pointed at them or a, a bayonet at their stomach or something like that. But it's very rare to see a photograph of a person who was in the act of dying right that moment. There's not a lot of pictures like that that I can think of, if any. So it's the urgency of that moment being frozen that is so indelible. And I think it invites the viewer to step into that moment in time in a way that it's easy to distance yourself from a dead body, although you shouldn't because you have to think, one should think about who was that person and what happened to them and how did they die. And you know, out of respect, we should never uh, not think about those questions of the humanity of a corpse. But here's a living person who's dying in that moment. So they're not dead yet, so you can't just walk away. You can't just look away. I think that has part of it. And then you're looking at the person who's murdering them. So you're seeing an act happening. And again, if you see a corpse or you see a, even someone wounded, you don't see the person who shot that person usually right there. It's a, a, a little drama of the war that's happening while you're looking at it, and it's frozen for all time. It's, it's extraordinarily powerful.
1: When did you first learn that there was video footage instead of just a still photograph?
2: I first understood about the video footage from seeing Hearts and Minds.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah. I remember being completely shocked. Completely shocked.
1: What was the difference between seeing, seeing the still photo and watching the video? I mean, I know it's shocking, but yeah. beyond that, well, what? Yeah,
2: we, I, I think that the footage goes by quickly. It only lasts as many seconds as it lasts. And then some other image comes along, or then it's over, and you don't have to keep looking at it. So it's horrific in that it's in color, and the blood is red, and you hear the sound. If in our case, we've added sound to it, so you you know it's real in a way that's gruesome and deeply disturbing. And you know how many of us, other than this, have really seen someone being killed right in front of our eyes, and then lying there dead, and the blood spurting out of his head. I mean, it's. It's unimaginably grotesque, but it's over. And then you can go look at something else or not, but the photograph doesn't go away. It just stays there. And so I think you have a chance to really contemplate what's happening and what happened before and what's happening in that moment, what's going to happen after in a different way because it's a still photograph. And if there's no better or worse, it's just they're different.
1: Now, I know NBC has been very cautious with licensing this footage over the past 49 years. So how did you persuade them to allow you to use it in the film?
2: Yeah, that, I, 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 that's really um, all the credit for that goes to Sarah Botstein. We uh, were able to explain to them that it was important to us to include this footage because it, rep- it was shown on television and it did play a part in Americans' understanding of the war and we would not put it in some kind of violent montage of just you know, horrors of the war, but it would be shown in context what happened, why, who was there, what was its effect, what was actually shown on television, how does it relate to the photograph. And it would be in a larger context of the whole history of the war, and that we would sort of treat it with the respect and um, authenticity that it deserved. And at the screening that we had, the... Um, woman who's in charge of all the licensing for NBC came and she said that she'd never seen the footage used in that way and they were really pleased that it was in the film and that it belongs here because it's an extraordinarily important moment and, you know, people need to know what happened, but they've been reluctant because they don't want it to be just sort of cheapened and sensationalized.
1: I spent some time with you while you were editing the movie, which was just fascinating to see, and part of what was really interesting about that process was seeing you leave enough space for people to just react to or absorb what they'd just seen, you know, whether it was adding three frames of black here or four there. For this footage in particular, what did you take into consideration sort of about how the audience would react and what you needed to give them in terms of time to process?
2: What we really tried to do first was to find out what exactly was shown on television, because we did want to show our audience what the American public actually saw. And so we we wanted to cut off the footage um, after um, Lem is shot and lying on the ground and the blood is spurting, you know, how long the camera rolls for quite a long time. Uh, And the footage goes on, but we didn't want to keep it going more than what the public actually saw. And that required Mike Weld, our producer, to spend some time going back and forth with NBC to try to find out exactly how long that scene lasted in the broadcast. And so that's how much time we show of it. And then we have to cut to black and you have to kind of think about it and that's just a very intuitive process um and you know we watch it over and over again ourselves and we bring people in to see it and we sort of gauge people's reactions who don't know anything about it or don't know what to expect and um you know through a really a trial and error add a little bit of black take a little bit out what do we do with the sound does it kind of carve out or does it kind of drop out or you know how do we make a transition so that you kind of can take a breath and um I don't know, I hope we got it right. It's it's hard to know because it's um, just so gruesome and hard to look at. You have to let people live in that for a little bit and then give them permission to say we're going to move on now to something else.
1: Eddie Adams' photo is one of those pictures that stays with you forever. I know it stayed with me since I've seen it. And Ken and Lin have a point. It says a lot not only that this execution happened at all, but that the people who did it were comfortable doing it in front of a photographer and a cameraman. Seeing Luan's body language in the footage made me realize this killing wasn't just public, it was carried out casually. That's a hard thing to understand, but it was at least one reality of the war in Vietnam, and General Luan wasn't the only person who crossed the line like this. One of the most striking things about the Vietnam War is the frank way that people in it talk about war crimes even ones that have long been taboo in Vietnam. Next up on The American War, we'll talk about how to tell the story of a brutal conflict. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, please take some time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Share with friends and family and find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. The American War is produced by Carol Alderman and Adriana Ucero with our direction from Chris Rukan. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg. This is The American War. If you like The American War, you should check
2: out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.
1: The Washington 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 Post. Post.